You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tonebender's Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today as we talk about a film with some of the best, most incredible, truly horrible sounds I've ever heard. Evil Dead Rise is a worthy addition to the Evil Dead canon. Before we get into talking about the film, I just want to tell you a quick story about my history with the franchise. Some of my earliest memories of building community through film were through Evil Dead. When I was in my early teens, my parents started to allow me to have sleepovers, and my friends and I would head out to the local video rental shop and rent Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, and we would watch them in the darkness of an unfinished suburban basement late at night. It was the greatest time possible. The joy of experiencing the screams and laughs as a group and then retelling all the scenes we had just watched together really put a stamp on my lifelong love of film. So getting to get back into talking about Evil Dead is something I'm really looking forward to. I saw the film in a crowded theater with a rowdy audience, and it was an amazing experience. Also joining me today is a first-time co-host here on Tonebenders, Tim Adkins. Tim has been a guest on our show previously. He's an accomplished dialogue and sound designer in game audio, having worked on the Far Cry series and many, many more titles. But he's also an Evil Dead superfan. So I had to get him on board for this talk, as I think he may have keyed in on some things that I might have missed quickly tim can you tell us about your relationship with the evil dead films yeah sure um i'm happy to be here thanks for having me first of all evil dead to me is a very seminal piece of work like many people of a certain age and i remember stealthily taping it um unbeknownst to my parents on a vhs uh, when they were broadcast on channel four in the uk and watch it again and again and again um and i just couldn't believe something as violent could be so joyous. <laughs> and I've actually even worked on a couple of fan-made Evil Dead films uh, in stop motion with uh, my friend and animator uh, Lee Hardcastle. It's quite a long time ago now, so I'm not hugely proud of the sounds that I <laughs> made for those films, but they're still on YouTube if you want to take a look. And uh, most recently of all, I, uh, I got into making miniatures over the pandemic, and I made a little miniature Evil Dead cabin, so I'm, yeah, pretty big fan. Awesome. <laughs> okay, well, now that we've got our fan credentials listed, uh, let's get to our guests today. Our first guest is Evil Dead Rise director, Lee Cronin. It's always great to have a director of a film on with us. Thanks for joining us to talk about sound, Lee. Oh, pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm excited to talk about what is a very, very vital part of this movie. It definitely is, and we're definitely going to get into that. We also have Peter Albrechtson, a long-time or maybe even casual listeners of Tone Menners will know Peter from his many previous appearances on the show. Peter and I actually recently got to hang out at the Golden Reel Awards. It was a great night. It's good to talk to you again, Peter. It's great to see you. And nice to see you. Nice to be here. Awesome. Okay, so I've been on record in the past that I'm normally not a huge fan of Atmos, specifically the ceiling speakers. Uh, I think that when not used correctly, it can actually take me out of a film as much as anything, and I'm suddenly hearing sounds above me that I wasn't expecting. But one of Peter's previous films, The Cave, that we actually talked to him about on this show, is the single best use of Atmos I've ever heard. And I think you've done it again, Peter, in this film with the use of the overheads. It really adds to the film and makes it 
such a wild ride. Uh, some moments in the film are kind of screaming out for Atmos treatment, like uh, ceiling air vents and such. And there are other spots that are less obvious. But Peter, I was wondering if we could start off by maybe talking about your approach to when to use the overheads, how to uh, kind of make them immersive and not something that jumps out at you. And maybe Lee, did he have to sell you on putting stuff up higher? I'll let you start, Peter. From the very beginning, we actually t- talked about that we wanted to do this in Atmos. Like Lee and I had this conversation from, I mean, that was one of the first conversations, Lee, right? We want to do this in Atmos. We want to make the story or the sound like really enveloping, like really have the audience be in this space with the characters. And um, as you say, Tim, there's so much in the film that is written in a way where it's really about like people reacting to something that is like on top of them or well sometimes also below them there's really a lot of like uh, scenes which are written in a way where it's all about like sound and how the characters react to sound and how they listen and that just opened up the door for like being really enveloping in the mix and really using the entire enveloping sound space for the film. Atmos was amazing for this. I think as well, for me, one of the things that I wanted for this movie was, although it's a contained horror movie, I wanted it to feel kind of sweeping and epic. So I wanted to use every tool I possibly could, even just in terms of from how we shot it, then through to using Atmos, to just give it the largest scale feel that we could and to really place you right in the heart of the terror. And it felt like the right move from the get-go. You mentioned it's kind of a contained film, but at the same time, it's on sound to fill out the rest of the world. Because once we get into the condo, we basically only once, I think she opens the window and yells down to someone who can't hear, but we're within that those few rooms for a, a massive chunk of the movie, but it feels like you're in a larger world at the same time, and that all falls on sound. Do you want to talk about your marching orders to Peter to try and fill that out for us? Make it good, Peter. Make it sound good. If it sounds good, it is good, right? Now, I think um, from the get-go, like we did talk early on about the atmospheres and the kind of character of the building, because although a lot of it takes place, the whole middle of the movie is kind of locked behind a, a door inside an apartment. But there are other areas earlier on that we do get to explore in the building. And also there's some scenes early on that are out in nature. But once we kind of lock the characters down, which is a big part of the essence of what an Evil Dead movie is, you know what I mean? You've got to take five, six people, put them in a space, lock them in there and scare the shit out of them. Um, I think we just talked about making sure that we didn't leave any stone unturned. That was kind of my attitude with Peter. Like, if we want to peel back, let's peel back, but let's not have something to work with and to dig in and to give a kind of personality to the space. And also, I, I always felt that I wanted to enhance the sounds within the kind of area of focus with the characters so that they're not really thinking about anything else but what's hitting them. So we were able to kind of play a lot of interesting games with perspective, which I really enjoyed. And I think for Peter, probably what he liked, because I wrote, it didn't just direct the movie, I wrote the screenplay as well. I think for Peter, he had a lot of fun seeing that when I write, I actually write the sound that I want into the screenplay from the get-go. So I think there was a good guide there. Peter had a sense of what it was that I was seeking from early on. Yeah, and we talked about like the way that the environments play a big part in this. So like it's raining constantly, there's uh, there's thunder sometimes, and then there's of course the sounds of the apartment, the actual different rooms, giving them each their own individual character, but also making the whole 
apartment kind of like fall apart during the film so like the floors are creaking more and more the pipes are rattling the like everything is just getting more and more like but also possessed in a way because that's the idea of this evil force like it has an impact on the very fabric of the building at that point as peter said we it's it's subtle but we slowly ramp up the volume and and the degradation of this space as we kind of go along we have electrical sound all, all the power that then turns off and on all that stuff as well so yeah there's a lot of things that create this environment which just makes it really intense i remember reading um, an article peter an interview with you where you mentioned panic room david finch's panic room as uh, an inspiration for the the ambiences how did you take that on board and what, what were your approaches to the ambience? Yeah, The Panic Room was one of the films that we talked about earlier. Um, the idea in that film is that you're also in the same space during night. You have to kind of create a lot of dynamics and changes and perspectives inside of the this location to kind of make it come alive and give it different dynamics. David Finch's sound designer, Ren Kleis, is really into all these textures, which is also what I really love. So we, there's all these different elements like that gives this place a character. But then at the same time, actually, we're also being very dynamic with the ambiences. Like sometimes you hear the background sounds, the rain, the thunder. Sometimes we take it all away, changing the space uh, acoustically. It's a very dynamic approach to using background sounds, but it was definitely one of the things like early on also just like the two of us having a conversation also about the amount of music, leaving space for the location to have a sound, but also kind of going in and out of music and sounds and so on, because often it's the music that kind of sets the tone in in big hollywood movies and there's no room for background sounds and we didn't want to do that we wanted to really create a very enveloping and very textured space i think there's there's a good example of that later in the movie and i won't spoil anything for anybody if they haven't seen it by the time they listen to this but there is there's there's a there's there's a sequence where characters get onto a corridor in the building and there's a there's like an electrical storm like thunder and lightning kind of going on and we'd always I remember particularly Peter, because there's not really a whole lot of music in that scene, uh, that sequence at all. And it was one of the hardest scenes to both shoot, cut and, and and design the sound for. There's a lot of complex things going on. But I remember always thinking we're like, OK, we got this storm kind of raging the whole time. And also there's lights flickering in the building anyway, because the building's kind of possessed in the fabric of it in its own right. But do you remember we actually even peeled back on the storm a huge amount and saved it for later in the sequence so we could just simply hear the fritzing of lamps and the whole scene just became way eerier. And actually within that, it's a good example of the movie as a whole is be- having the space to create a shape to tell the story through soundscape so that you're not just at 11 the whole whole time. That was something that always sticks out in my mind. And actually when I watch it and I've seen it in theaters a few times recently, it's really enjoyable um, when it, cause it actually creates this tension through the fact that you're kind of seeing thunder and lightning, but why am I hearing it? But I am hearing the of lights and then it slowly starts to feed its way back in until the entire sequence becomes a wall of noise. Fantastic. The dynamic of the movie is is amazing. And I'm a big fan of stripping out too much music. So I appreciate that a lot. One thing that really struck me about this film in the in the franchise is how much it felt like it belonged in there. And I think a big part of that is the sound, of course. And I'm just curious how you kind of approached that kind of almost slapstick, Raimi manic energy that he has and the aesthetic. Was that part of the vision from the get-go? 
um, to kind of lean into that side of the franchise in the sound. Do you want to take that one, Peter? You look like you're yeah, I mean, taking a breath we, in we, there to talk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the first things that that happened was that I got this hard drive with all these digitized sounds from the first two movies. So not just the sound mixes, but the actual sound effects recordings that, I mean, most of those were done by Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi. It was all these iconic sounds that both Lee and I, like fans of this franchise forever, there's all these sounds, the iconic Evil Dead sounds that we wanted to have in the new film as well, but then build on that. But yeah, we had all these old sounds available. So everything from the force sounds to like one of the first sounds you hear in the movie is the sound of, the, of a fly, which is actually the very first sound you hear in the first Evil Dead film. So yeah, there's several kind of references to the old Evil Dead sound universe. I think what's nice though, is we didn't use those to define this movie. We used them in places to just refine or to be additive in certain ways because we'd found our, we'd actually found our the structure of the soundscape of the movie before we even actually really started to bring them into play too much. And that's the thing about this film, like from the get go, like from my point of view as a filmmaker, writing and directing it, and Peter coming in with sound, like we were both fans. So we the, the DNA of these films was actually in us, and that was actually quite freeing. I think there was never a single occasion we sat down and were like, hey, we should watch this scene. Maybe once, I think maybe we watched a little Dead by Dawn chanting sequence from Evil Dead 2, but we weren't like referring back to the movies because we already knew we had the spirit. I think that's what's interesting about this film across the board and people experience it. It's like, it feels like something different that you haven't seen and in the context of our conversation or quite heard before. But then there are those touch points of familiarity that allow you to feel the references and to feel the the love of the lore from the past. Something that I really loved about this film, and I'm going to make some assumptions that I'm pretty confident in, there are a lot of scenes that have sound driving the bus. For instance, there's a scene in an elevator where visually we're seeing a woman looking around scared and lights are flickering on and off. The The whole story of why she's scared and what is happening is being told by sound. Uh, there's this, another scene where we're looking at just pages in a book. Visually, they're kind of frightening images, but they become terrifying because of the sound that we're hearing while looking through the book. I'm pretty sure that the picture was not locked and then handed over to Peter because the sound seemed to really influence the way those scenes were edited. Do you want to talk about how that Passover back and forth, if I'm correct, uh, went uh, with sound influencing picture and picture influencing sound? Yeah, I was I was a part of the process from pretty much the very beginning of the, the picture edit. I was on this film for eight months, so it was a long, long process. And so the sound editing were running in parallel with the picture editing. So Lee and picture editor Brian Shaw was editing and then sending stuff to me that I was doing sketches for, then send sounds back to them. And then they used that and then sent something back again. And like, it was a lot of going back and forth. For the first few months, I was in Copenhagen while they were at the, well, you guys actually started editing in New Zealand, but then you moved to Dublin. But we were just sending a lot of, a lot of sketches back and forth. It was really inspiring because you kind of like, because I was on so early, there was also the time to experiment. So, for example, the elevator scene that you mentioned, Tim, I think we went through like 
quite a lot of different passes, like full sound design passes, where we were like trying different things out. It was like, how much music should there be? How quiet could we go? How loud should it be? There's all these uh, different things that we kept on experimenting with. And it, I mean, we kept going until the end of the mix, pretty much. Yeah, that was a complicated one because all we had, as you said, it's an interesting one to point out. We have an actor in a space. I've explained the sequence to her on what's written. I've I've a bunch of different sound effects on like a stereo that I'm basically playing to try and give her things to react to, or I'm banging a stick on a box on set. I had a lot for some reason I ended up with a bunch of crying baby sounds that just sounded creepy. And using those to get her to react and to build to a greater intensity. And then all, then what Peter had was again my words on the page um, to try and describe the things that she was hearing. And there are only so many words. And I back myself to describe what you hear quite well, but there's only so many words you can use before you actually just need to start to experiment and just try and actually dig in and see how to make that work. And and, and then in reference to the book, which is a piece that I love, that was when we spoke about that, like we knew what our idea was from early on, which was like, let's create the sense of like, as you turn each page, there's a little bit of living history nearly coming off the page. You can kind of hear the sound of of what what's right there and it adds quite a cool texture to that sequence i was hoping to ask you about the um the incantation sequence which is one of my favorites in the movie which is kind of going on around that same time i think it was garrett farrell that did a fantastic job on the vocal processing for that scene i was just curious if you could explain how long it might have taken him to get to that result because it seems like it may have taken some time uh and are you able to talk about any of the processing that he did for those voices i never stopped putting pressure on him that's all i can say <laughs> take over <laughs> that was a crazy process it's also one of these scenes that we just kept on developing and um it was important that these were old 78 records it kind of had to go up and down in tempo as well so it was lo-fied, but it was also treated in a way where the pitch went up and down a little bit. At the same time, also really, again, making the, the sound very enveloping so that when the incantation starts, it's not just something coming from the sensor speaker, it's coming from all around you. Garrett did amazing things with this. And then something that I love about this is all the sounds of the vinyl. As a big music lover, I've always been like slightly annoyed by vinyls in movies because like as soon as you see like vinyl playing it's always like just the same like just the same kind of loop and for me it was really important that it didn't feel just like a loop it has to it had to feel like a vinyl that was constantly like almost living breathing entity in its in its own a great DJ friend, hip hop producer in Denmark, who uh, I knew had lots of like so old seventy eight records. So we did a like a full library of like so many recordings of different old seventy eight records, so that we could have all these textures that were constantly alive. So that the voice was, of course, like a very big thing, but also just like the whole feel of the record that it feels like it's cursed. And it's also breathing almost. Was the idea for the um, the seventy eight speed? Obviously, it makes a lot of sense given when the what time the vinyl was pressed in. But was that in the script from the start? The way they have to push the vinyl manually because modern turntables don't have that speed setting. For me, it came from actually being a kid, you know, being a record player at home, and some old seventy eights that I still have hanging around, but no seventy eight player. 
it always stuck out in my head. But then it was also the story serving that concept because it was a it was a methodology for the experiments with the book to be captured. And and I, I always really kind of liked that part that he gets to fiddle around, so he still got to push it a little bit further, which I thought was quite cool. And it adds um an, another layer of organic quality to actually what you hear because it's been essentially manually cranked at that point in time, which is which is pretty cool. Just to touch on while we're on this section, which was great, is like we tell an entire prehistory and story through sound. And so there's actually a lo- lot of exposition. That exposition gets buried in the technique that we present on screen. So it feels unique. Even though we're giving the audience information, we're giving them prehistory, we're giving them some rules in the movie, but it's done in a way that it's not just someone sitting in a room telling you something. And it actually allows the audience's imagination to flourish through the use of sound, which to me is just like a great party trick to pull. Almost everybody that I know that's seen this film brings up a moment in the film involving a cheese grater. <laughs> I freaked out when I saw it. I'm going to be honest with you. That, that was an amazingly horrible moment. But what people haven't talked to me about as much that got me maybe even worse was the eating of the glass. The sound of that is really, really amazingly horrible. Peter, do you want to talk about building chewing glass sounds? <laughs> please, please tell me you didn't chew some glass. <laughs> he would if you asked him to. He would. <laughs> I mean, a lot of those kind of more splatty sound effects in the film are done in a very kind of classic, traditional way, where you, I mean, for something like glass, then you take some glass and then you kind of like you do some really close-up recordings of it, so it feels really present and really sharp different movements and bites and chunks that's happening. It's a fun one. Like there's a, the, the last bite that she's taking off the glass, the, she's not even biting in the glass, but the sound is so strong that you just believe it. I mean, I love how the, the sounds of, of these things are so powerful that you just believe everything. I mean, there's a lot of people who have asked me like, Peter, how have you been like, how, how has it been possible for you to sit and do these sounds for so many months? Like, hasn't it been terrifying? And did you get some therapy? And the thing is that a lot of these things are built up through how the sound is done. And of course, how it's edited, how it's shot. But like, it's really, it really becomes creepy with the sound that you add to it. A lot of these splatty things are just like great examples of like what the right, precise, sharp, horrible sound does to a moment like that. I really liked the sound of your voice there, Peter, as you got more kind of weak as you described the person that was scared of those sounds. (laughs) It's like I could hear the person getting paler. (laughs) Presumably, Peter, you did a ton of um, gore recordings for the film as well. I mean, there's a fair amount of blood, I think it's safe to say, in the movie. Uh, Did you come up with any new techniques for recording those kinds of sounds or did you lean on the classics vegetables and and meats and things like that i didn't reinvent the wheel when it came to like the splatty stuff it was like celery for bones crackling and tomatoes and mandarins they were also good for the splatty stuff and um i mean what we did and what i thought was really interesting to create like a 
kind of demonic quality to a lot of these sounds was that whenever one of the possessed characters are like a part of this, then usually I make the sound both go forward and backwards at the same time. So especially when Ellie is moving around, all her movements, it's done with sillery and a little bit of like flesh and bone, <laughs> but all of it goes backwards and forwards at the same time. And also, Peter, we're touching on there's a bunch of non-vocal moments in the movie where we brought in Yeni, like like brilliant artist, to actually vocalize things that were physical and then use some of those vocals to actually add a voice to what would usually just be a practical sound. Exactly. So there's stuff like when the blood seeps into the Book of the Dead, then that is actually the sound of air going through the throat of Jenny Rosanda, who is a Danish singer. She's actually a pop singer, but she can do all these crazy things with her voice. I brought her in early and we had a, f- a few sessions with her, like four sessions where we she just kept on doing more and more crazy sounds. Uh, the last sessions was uh, with, with both Lee and Bruce Campbell, who came over for the mix in Copenhagen and me. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. Also because actually she was super scared of horror movies. So she wouldn't really look at the screen, but she was able to do all these weird, monstrous sounds. And for some of the stuff where it gets really beastly towards the end of the film, I had actually done a pass of kind of using animal sounds and stuff like that to kind of create the sound of the, this demonic like beast. One of the things that we talked about from very early on what the, was that we wanted it to feel human. So then Jenny heard the stuff that I had done and then re- she replicated that with her voice. So it became kind of a human version of beastly sound design well uh we're gonna wrap this up but i I want to ask lee a question that we always ask whenever we have directors on the podcast we normally talk with uh, the sound teams and the sound teams always tell us how great and inspiring the directors were can you kind of talk about maybe where you were inspired by peter and his sound team zero inspiration at all no i think (laughs) in a really basic point of view I'm on a journey making a movie for a number of years and people come along at different stages and they drop on and off and they do their part of the job. But getting the energy commitment and the actually the commitment to detail, I think was something that really got me excited outside of the great ideas that Peter and his team kind of had. But it was the fact that they were approaching filmmaking the same way as me, which was we're not going to just say that will do. Even if it's great, can it be better? And when you're deep in the trenches and you've been running a movie for a couple of years, having that fresh energy is actually really, really inspiring. Like you'll dig in deep yourself, but knowing that there's other people fighting as hard as you've been for a period of time is really, really great. And I think for me, it's the first time I'd used Atmos. So there was an education for me in relation to that as well. And once Peter was able to showcase, you know, the choices that he was making, the things we've been talking about coming to life in that way, then I was able to be quite nimble in terms of my opinions at that point in time and yeah and just a never say die attitude i think when we were approaching the end of this mix i think it must have been three or four times peter that i'm like i have to fly in the morning and then i just ring production be like you know what you're gonna have to move my flight again because we're just not there yet so i think overall that's the thing that i would like the, i think the talent is there the, the amazing ability and the, the craftsmanship is there for everybody to hear if they watch this movie 
But what people don't get to know is the personality behind that that actually shows leadership and helps carry everybody forward. And that's how I like to work in all aspects of movie making. So then when you bring in Peter and he's leading a team and you've got all these leaders of their own sections of what it is that you're doing. And as I said, you, you see people missing family events or sleeping four hours a night. I'm not saying it's healthy, but it's inspiring. To pile on about how Peter uh, can be uh, somewhat inspiring, I've now met Peter in person on two separate occasions and spent some time with him. And I found that one thing that Peter can do, and I think, Lee, you'll probably be able to relate to this, is he has a way of listening to you and then ramping up his own excitement based on your ideas and bouncing them back at you with better ideas, but also just like he, he makes you feel like you're part of his idea almost. Like he's he's really inspiring person to be around in person. And uh, I'm jealous that you got to spend all that time in the mix room with him. Yeah, he's like, a, <laughs> I can picture Peter in like a candy shop, but all the jars are just full of different sounds that he's pulling out of the times. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the screening that I got to see it in was a rowdy crowd with everybody having a great time. Uh, the person in front of me was kind of narrating my emotions when like there's one scene where the two of the children are walking down a hallway and you just see a brief moment that they're being followed suddenly. And the guy in front of me just whispered under his breath, a obscene swear word. That was exactly what was going through my mind at that moment. And it just made a really great community uh, feel when seeing the movie that I, I haven't had in a long time and is a pretty rare thing. So thanks for making the movie that uh, got to let me have that great night out. Oh, that's awesome. And that, that's what we set out to do was to create just a good, fun, scary time at the movies. And I think that's the thing that surprised a lot of people is that this movie is fun. It's not just scary, but it's also a whole lot of fun. And it also has, just to bring it back to the sound, like I think just, you know, one of the the, the greatest horror mixes I think you'll ever hear. And I can only have so much input on that. It requires what, what Peter did. So I hope it's well recognized, um, you know, amongst the community and, and stuff like that. I think, I think if this movie can win any awards, it's probably for sound. So it's, uh, and maybe Volume of Blood. Uh, and and best, best possession of a child, but yeah, I think I think it's it's a really remarkable aspect of this movie, um, and it needed to be really robust to stand up to what was a very brazen kind of visual um, approach as well. So the, the whole thing supports itself and makes it stronger. Awesome! Thank you very much. Can't wait to see your next film, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. And a big special thanks to Tim Atkins for being our special co-host today. Thanks, Tim. We're gonna have to have you on again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Before we leave, I want to send out a quick apology for disappearing from your podcast feed for a while. I have had a really tough spring health-wise. I broke a rib, I had a nasty case of COVID, and both really knocked me down for a while. But I'm pretty much back to normal now, so you should be seeing more episodes coming your way soon. I was actually able to do a bunch of interviews while I was down, so it's just a matter of editing them and getting them out in the world. If anyone out there has some free time coming up and would like to tackle editing an episode, it would be really appreciated, and I can get you some free sound effects as well for your time. Just write to us at info at tonebenderspodcast.com if you're interested in volunteering. Otherwise, on behalf of Lee, Peter, and Tim Atkins, I'm Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. 
You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.